Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to The Scoop. I'm your host, Frank Chaparro, editor-at-large at The Block, and we have a very exciting episode of the show for you today. Folks, joining us on the other side of the mic is Alex Gladstein, Chief Tr- Strategy Officer at the Human Rights Foundation. Were you at Bitcoin Miami? Yeah, I just returned from a few days in so Miami. So just getting yep. back. Just mm-hmm. getting back. We're going to be discussing Alex's new book, Hidden Repression, how the IMF and World Bank sell exploitation as development. But before we dive in, I want to take a moment to thank our sponsors. This show is sponsored in part by CleanSpark, America's Bitcoin miner. With CleanSpark, you can feel good about investing in the Bitcoin ecosystem because CleanSpark uses low-carbon energy for their Bitcoin mining data centers and is always optimizing their operations to increase energy efficiency and reduce e-waste, all while partnering with the communities they operate in. If you want to support the future of Bitcoin while also supporting the environment, visit www.cleanspark.com to learn more about the CleanSpark way. So, Alex, thanks for joining us after the voyage down to mm-hmm. Miami. How's it going? It's great. It's, um, you know, the ongoing Bitcoin adoption train continues. Uh, I think people are surprised at all of the ideas coming into Bitcoin right now. I think people maybe had a perception that Bitcoin was like dead or ossified. And there's 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 so much happening right now that it's impossible to keep up. Like there's so many proposals coming out now for scaling, for privacy, for putting, for, for pegging or rooting things into the chain. Uh, it's really exciting times. Well, it's an interesting juxtaposition, right? I don't know if you caught this, but it caught the ire of many Bitcoin fans <laughs> on Twitter, but we had Tom Schmidt, a okay. uh, friend of the show over at Dragonfly, oh, yeah, say yeah, yeah, that yeah. he's not interested in Bitcoin. He's he's bored. And then, of course, I think that was before Miami, but in the wake of Miami, of course, uh, a lot of uh, a lot of noise yeah. around it being more sleepy, a lot of mainstream press around it being dead. We had folks on the ground there. It looked like they were having a relatively fun time. Uh, obviously, attendance was a bit uh, less oh, than yeah. years prior, but you know, maybe sort of commenting um, against that backdrop of, of Mr. Mm-hmm. Schmidt, and then of course some of the mainstream press around it being a yeah. dead event. Well, no, it's just it's it's more signal, and I think you've heard a lot of people say this. Uh, There's a lot of noise last year. It was look, it was fun. It was like Woodstock. There were like thirty thirty thousand people there or something. But uh, you know, most of them weren't there for for freedom money. That's not not what most of them were there for. And I think um, this year was was really solid. I think the organizers kind of nail it when it comes to uh, being kind of narrowly focused on Bitcoin. You know, roughly speaking, um, as best as they can, while being open on culture. Like you had a lot of good conversations there about what was wrong with Bitcoin or, or, you know, where it can grow. And, and that's, I think, super helpful for an audience to see. I mean, they don't want to, and what's the point of what listening to people just say number go up forever. Um, this is inevitable. And, you know, it, you know, that's, that's kind of boring. So I, I think they did a great job. It was a much tighter event this year. It's moving to Nashville next year, which I think will be really, really interesting. Um, and yeah, in general, I think, look, uh, there's great VCs uh, investing in Bitcoin. Um, there are. There are a lot of great VCs investing in Bitcoin. Actually, they're growing. S- some of them are um, 
you know, VCs that have a broader scope and, and, and then they, they're involved in some really great Bitcoin companies like river, for example, has some backers that are maybe a little more broad, but, but are, you know, really sharply invested in a company like river. Uh, and others are like Bitcoin only VCs. And this is like a growing thing. There's a whole bunch of them now. Um, and I tend to think some of them will probably do pretty well over the coming five to 10 years. Um, I also think that uh, it's fair to say that most VCs aren't interested in Bitcoin because it's hard to generate a very, very fast immediate return uh, like you can do with tokens. So I, I, I think that that's also a fair comment. So I would be nuanced. I wouldn't say that like all the, you know, all VCs are, are out or, or NGMI. I think that's inaccurate, but, but mm -hmm. most are. <laughs> so. I think Tom mentioned the ordinal use case, obviously that was hot mm -hmm. um, earlier this year, but what other types of developments are folks talking about? Um, Lightning, obviously it's taken a long time to sort of even get to where yep. we are today, but we're still nowhere near uh, the full scale, uh, which folks think could happen. And it's still quite clunky yeah. to sort of engage with Lightning, whether it's, um, you know, node management or channel operations. Was that a topic of conversation? Yeah. I mean, Bitcoin is hard to master. It's um, it's a very, very thick piece of clay. It's it's a more like a stone. It, it's not uh, it's not easy to bend to your desires. Um, and more than that, it doesn't have a company marketing it or like a, a, a giant pre-mind available to to spend down on marketing budget to buy stadiums and stuff like that. So it's it's mm -hmm. uh, it's a slow grind. And people, I hope, realize that it's not a get rich quick scheme. I mean, I mean, obviously, it's been down for several years now. So I think what you're seeing, though, is just the gradual, gradual adoption both globally, which of course we'll talk about, but also domestically. I mean, it was kind of amazing to see two candidates. I understand they're pretty fringe. I mean, we'll see what RFK does, but um, I mean, both of them announced they were taking donations in Bitcoin, in Lightning. Uh, and more importantly, because, you know, we had Yang a few years ago, uh, more importantly said they would take, they would be pro-Bitcoin as candidates. That's, that's a little more interesting. So to have Democrats and Republicans coming on board you know, presidential candidates uh, being pro Bitcoin. That's really interesting to me. Um, and you know, I, I'm I'm more involved on the social side of, of things. Like I'm, I follow the technical developments as best as I can, and I feel like that's where the arguments happen in crypto Twitter or or in the cryptocurrency industry. Like like the the VC you were describing, they're kind of staring at the protocol and they're being like, well, why isn't it moving fast enough? I, I think that. The protocol itself is uh, extremely important, of course, but the, the communities growing around it and the externalities that Bitcoin has on the world are are equally as important. And these are the ones that people just aren't seeing, whether it be how it's going to change our relationship with energy and cheap energy, stranded energy, or, or whether it's going to be empowering people around the world who finally get a chance to have maybe a shot at a, an open neutral currency system. Um, something that they just have not had throughout their lifetimes. So that's that's where I'm focusing on. Yes, I'm following Lightning. I, I think it it continues to get better. I mean, look, we had this giant fee spike, which was which was a great stress test for Bitcoin. I think uh, obviously the fees are back down now, but like, I mean, yeah, I mean, some wallets ceased to work because they were making shortcuts, and other wallets worked really well. Um, 
And now there's great, there's more good questions about, well, is lightning going to be the thing? I think it's fair to say that lightning will be one thing that, that will be interesting and helpful in Bitcoin. It won't be the only thing. There's going to be lots of other L2 type solutions, uh, assuming Bitcoin continues to, to change over time. A lot of them were debuted and a couple of them were debuted in Miami. I mean, we're talking some very interesting stuff here. Um, but anyway, the point is that uh, people continue to think deeply about this idea of in 20 years, can everybody have a UTXO? Like, can everybody actually self-custody Bitcoin? And currently, the answer today would be no um, for a variety of reasons. So morally speaking, like ethically speaking, I think it, it's interesting for us to think about how we could get there. You know, if this thing's really going to be money for the world, that's more democratized than current fiat system then really everybody should have a chance to self-custody some coin for their families and for their futures. Currently, that's possible. Like for, to, for right now, you can go and do it. But our concerns are like in 20 years, will it take weeks and weeks of wages to, to pay a fee just to get on chain or to open a channel for a second layer? And I think these are these are the kind of conversations we should be having. These are very important ones. And you know what? If like new use cases and demand on Bitcoin block space come in and make us think about these things faster. I think that's great. Regardless of whatever you think of, you know, monkeys, it's fine. You know, like th these are new unexpected demands on Bitcoin block space. Nobody predicted ordinals. I mean, nobody. I mean, I remember Casey, the originator, he was trying to convince us, shill us on it last year, <laughs> last year. And I think some people were interested, but other people were yeah. like, hmm, I don't know. And then he like, yeah, it just goes crazy. So there's going to be a lot more black swans that happen pertaining to the the demand on the Bitcoin block space. But in general, uh, I like I like where everything's heading, and I'm very optimistic about the ability of people around the world to to continue to enter the system. One to, way to maybe highlight or juxtapose the the sort of social adoption curve with the technological adoption curve is comparing maybe your experience down in Miami with, we talked last time we were on the phone, the conference in Ghana, mm -hmm. which maybe illustrates or illustrated for you that sort of social dynamic. How are they maybe using it in some of these regimes um, or, or rather jurisdictions, I should say, because there are these technical um, impediments, but yet they're able to overcome them. They're so interested in the subject matter, but are they are they use, utilizing it in a, in a relatively seamless way? And, and how is that the case? Yeah, I mean, to be clear, NGU remains the engine for Bitcoin, like long-term. Like it, fiat money is devalued over time and that's what it's designed to do. That's what mm -hmm. politicians do with it. Um, and you can make your arguments for it for sure, but but Bitcoin is, is different. Um, it, it is not to be devalued. and clearly like the main driver of its price is today is demand and that goes up and down and so does the price but long term if you believe there's going to be more deplatforming and more devaluation in mm. in the financial system then you've got to believe bitcoin's going to be more valuable in the future i mean it's the it, again even if you're involved with all kinds of different projects just remember bitcoin's the, the only digital asset forget just cryptocurrency think about all the digital money we use in the world today that's run by governments and corporations, like it's its the only thing where the people have control over the monetary policy, at least in my view. And, and that's what makes it so, so interesting. And, and so NGU will be ultimately the thing that drives it. I mean, over time, your wages 
holding or increasing their purchasing power is a phenomenal humanitarian technology and very, very different from what we have today. Um, and certainly price is the greatest teacher. Like, you know, speculation does drive adoption. There's no question. However, it's not the only thing uh, that Bitcoin is useful for. Yes, savings and like buying some and holding on to it is obviously dominant. But there are a lot of very other extremely important use cases that you see more often when you go down to, to Accra, Ghana, for example. So to compare the Africa Bitcoin conference to the one I was just at, um, look, if you, you, know, you drill deep enough, there's really great signal in Miami. But like most people who are there are like comfortable with their jobs, trying to make a quick buck, like, you know, they're there for entertainment. It's almost like a hobby kind of for a lot of people, right? Um, like a lot of people make their fiat income and then maybe with some extra, they, they buy some Bitcoin or they involve themselves in other cryptocurrencies. Um, what's going on in Ghana is very, very different. I mean, you have, first of all, the conference is organized by a political activist who is challenging something called the colonial franc currency system whereby France still controls the currency of 14 African countries in Central and West Africa and has devalued those currencies by 99.9% since World War II uh, uh, you know, against the franc and euro. So you've got a classic monetary colonialism situation here where a Western power was, was squeezing the currency system of more than 100 million people so that it could get their exports more cheaply and so it could you know deflate their wages and, and get cheaper things like uranium and, and timber gold fossil fuels etc um so you've got the organizers are that's their focus and that's why they think bitcoin's interesting because it gives monetary freedom um that's very different from like an industry event where people are you know accountable to their board and it's all about profits and ticket sales um Again, I love Miami, but it's just a very, I'm sure the organizers would agree, it's just a very, very different conference. So look, I'd really encourage other people to, to go to the Africa Bitcoin conference. I hope, to, I hope to visit a few more that are similar. I'm going to the one in Indonesia in October, hopefully. Um, there's a few others popping up. There's SatsConf in Brazil and HRF, the Human Rights Foundation. We're, we're going to come out and support these initiatives because this is very important uh, for people living under difficult political climates that they have. Uh, more access to Bitcoin, that they have more markets for Bitcoin, that they that they have more education in their local communities and languages about it. So that's something that's of paramount importance for us. Yeah, but in general, like no one tried to sell me anything in Ghana. I was there for like five days. That was a first. <laughs> I've been to a lot of a lot of a lot of cryptocurrency conferences, and that was that was a first. And then the other thing was, um, yeah, just kind of how focused everybody was on on being collaborative, and th there was just very little negativity if any i mean look there's going to be scams of course but like it just seemed to be a little different and that that was that was notable um i uh yeah and it, it's kind of it's again connected to to my new book um which is basically a zoom out of how dominant western powers over time have have manipulated the currency system actually and the debt system too uh, harvest the resources of poor countries and yeah and deflate wages there so we can have a higher quality of life uh, in in the west and how this is yeah it's not just it's just not a medium of exchange right i mean this is a very correct key central way to control and if you talk to anyone um 
from any of these countries. I was in a mm-hmm. car once with a man from Cameroon, and I mean, there's they're very much a lot of them, at least um, folks who are in these countries mm-hmm. um, under the CFA or who use the CFA. Um, you know, they love the French people. There's no sure. beef on a personal level, but it's still like this this looming overhang or hangover from colonialism that is almost it's antagonistic in a way. And you can't really control, you can't, how much control do you really have? Yeah. I mean, I think it, 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 the dual use case of Bitcoin really comes out when you, when you're there in terms of digital cash and digital gold, like it, it really supposed it, it's both for these folks. Like it is, it is in many ways about, um, medium of exchange in terms of like today in Africa, 80% of inter-African payments go through American or European companies. So that's, just sort of colonial, right? So the idea that, that those flows could be peer-to-peer and, and in, in, enrich local markets instead of uh, being victim to rent-seeking by foreign mm-hmm. powers, it's a very powerful idea. Um, so the medium exchange stuff is is a big deal. Like in Africa, remember, it's this isn't the United States where you have one currency for, for 50 states. This is a place that has 45 different currencies that are not really interoperable. It's, it's a huge pain to do business. Every single border you cross, somebody takes takes a cut. There's rent-seeking, whether it be by a local government or foreign government or some alphabet soup organization. So the medium exchange thing is very powerful there, much more powerful, I think, than, than like, let's say, in a place like the United States where we don't have as many issues with that. Um, but then you see the digital gold thing, which is more about replacing central banking. Like, it's more about... And that sounds like many Americans would, would think about that phrase and say, oh, this is like a crazy creature from Jekyll Island, you know, gold bug person. Um, but guess what? <laughs> in these countries in West Africa, the central bank was, first of all, col- first, first controlled by colonialists, second controlled by dictators. I mean, it is completely noble and just to want to replace central banking over there. I mean, you can argue about the job the Fed's doing over here. But this is not some sci-fi fantasy. This is like really important to these people to have uh, a central bank asset that that their states and communities hold that cannot be abused and gatekept uh, as easily. So you really start to see the two use cases, uh, the two dominant use cases uh, come out and, 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 and crystallize into high definition when you're there. Here's a message from our sponsor, CleanSpark. CleanSpark is a NASDAQ-listed company that mines Bitcoin. Basically, they build and operate data centers with tens of thousands of computers that help secure Bitcoin, making it more reliable and secure for anybody, anywhere to use. These computers require a lot of energy, but that's why CleanSpark predominantly uses low-carbon energy to power their machines. But that's not all. They care about the communities where their data centers are located. They create jobs, donate to schools and community centers, and revitalize aging electricity grids in rural parts of America. They aren't just a Bitcoin miner. They're one of the most efficient and sustainable Bitcoin miners in America. Visit www.cleanspark.com to learn more. And in the book, do you sort of, I feel like you highlight this misconception in which you can juxtapose like the anti-central bank rhetoric in the United States, all fair and well, mm-hmm. will also sort of almost highlighting the more robust argument that they might have in the global South about, like it's almost more, um, makes more sense to be a gold bug in the global South, as it were, than maybe sure. in the United States. Yeah, I mean, 
with the massive caveat that it, you can't teleport it, so it had extremely limited utility. It's also hard to hard to melt down and chop up. I mean, it, it look gold failed. I mean, gold will continue to have value for like large institutions and maybe for family families, of course, for cultural reasons. I think I think the citizens of India own more gold than 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 the Fed and the U.S. government purport to uh, uh, at Fort Knox. But the point is that. Um, Gold's just not going to work for a 21st century digital economy, and and it it did not it wasn't able to avoid getting captured by governments. It just failed. So, so we have something new that that was created with an eye towards how gold was neutralized as money. Um, and I think that what you see in the book is that I think we as a, I speak as an American or as a you know as a beneficiary of the uh, what we call the the golden billion or like the the people who live in the, the basically like wealthy countries in North America, Europe, East Asia. Um, you know, our system is so inward looking when the fed raises interest rates here. Um, they're, they don't have a mandate to like care about other countries. That's not in the feds mandate. Right. Uh, and what happens and you can see it very clearly in the early eighties when Volcker was raising rates really sharply. And, and now when Powell's doing it is that you have this unelected group of people more or less, um, uh, older, very wealthy people. I mean, let's not forget where Powell comes from, private equity guy, uh, super wealthy guy. I mean, and, and they're kind of making the decisions for, for not just Americans, but for everybody. So um, <clears throat> the system that I detail in the book shows you how uh, over time the, post, the Bretton Woods order uh, encouraged and pushed debt onto poor nations starting really in the 1960s. And and they, they accumulated more and more and more debt to the point where the decision makers in Washington and New York and London realized the only way these countries could pay back this debt with was more debt. So you have these like inescapable, what they're called, their debt traps. And this is dollar denominated primarily. So, so you've got the ZERP era, right? You've got like this decade of super low interest rates, more or less. And then all of a sudden, like, you know, all this debt they owe is is uh, the cost of capital for dollars goes way up. And it's not like you can like print your local CDs typically, and then just like easily pay back your debtor, you know, the creditors, <laughs> right? So uh, that would tank your currency, right? This is what's so poorly understood by MMT people. They're like, oh, whatever. If you're like some country, you can just swap your currency, whatever. Petrodollar doesn't matter. No, 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 that's false. Like you, if you're Malawi, you can't just print your local currency and buy it. And buy oil. You have to get dollars, and you can't. What, what's going to happen if you try to buy a ton of dollars with, with your currency? It's, your currency is going to collapse. So, um, so they have to structure their economies to export stuff to us for dollars or dollar substitutes like euros, so that they can buy fertilizer, tractors, oil, stuff like that. And you start to see that when the cost of capital goes way up, like when we at home raise rates to tame inflation here, we make it all but impossible for these countries to afford. Uh, the the goods they need, the energy they need, and the food they need, and, uh, and and to pay back the debt, which is usually the first thing they have to pay when they go pay their national bill every month or year. So it's caused I incredible suffering in the last 18 months around the world. I mean, I think most people, if you read the FT, you've seen uh, coups, countries collapsing, revolutions, people have seen uh, massive inflation, IMF bailouts, like this is this is some really serious stuff. So I mean, I would just ask that you maybe not glaze your eyes over at this stuff, but actually look at look at what's happening and 
and when these IMF bailouts happen, I mean, what's basically occurring is that we're usually giving, it's usually a dictator, like in Egypt, for example, Sisi. So we're usually giving some sort of military government or, or some government that's pretty unaccountable, several billion dollars in exchange for squeezing his population. So for example, like the, the structural adjustment loan to Egypt right now, like it, it requires a devaluation of the local currency, raising of taxes, stripping of sort of subsidies on, on food and energy, things like that. So it's basically like... Um, but you can't just like flip a switch, right? right. And go to the Bitcoin standard. <laughs> uh, we've seen the we've seen the hurdles that have transpired or come to fruition mm-hmm. out of El Salvador. Oh, no, it'll be it'll be tough. But I guess all I'm saying is that, you know, the current system is predatory in many ways. Mm. And it, it'd be good for us to acknowledge that. Like, we should be proud of our of, of, of the American Revolution. And, and we should be proud of our Bill, Bill of Rights. And we should be proud of democracy and, and all these things. It's definitely part of the reason why we're so successful. But another part of the reason is, is we've stolen wealth, labor, resources from poor countries for a long time. Now, the Bitcoin... Adoption, you know, it's it's it, you're right. It's not just going to happen overnight. I think it's I think it's really gradual. I think it takes decades. And any any country that comes out and tries to disrupt the system, or any leader who does that, I mean, it usually doesn't end well for them. Like a famous one would be Thomas Sankara, who tried to convince African nations to not pay their colonial debt back in the '80s. He was assassinated and replaced by somebody who was very happy to take more debt from the World Bank and IMF. Um, there's a lot of examples of that. So now you have Bukele, who's in an interesting position because, I mean, look, it's a dollarized economy. So he's not quite as much of a threat as, as, as like, let's say it had Argentina would be that, and then we'd be really talking. Okay. But for Bukele, I mean, he definitely cast the first stone here. I mean, he, it was an incredible thing he did, I, I think. I mean, I've been a huge critic of Bukele's policies generally, but I think the Bitcoin adoption thing was, was big and important and good. Um, and I think that it, it's of limited impact at first because it, it's not a huge percentage of the economy we're talking about in the, over there changing rapidly, but it's a start. And it, it shows other countries that it's possible and there's a way forward that's not debt colonialism. And I think that that's a really, really big deal. And I just think it's going to take a lot of time. And a lot of the countries that try to do it at first are going to be turned back. I mean, look what happened to the Central African Republic. Clearly, the president was interested in Bitcoin. He seemed to get co-opted by this like Sango shitcoin thing. That was a disaster. And now the parliament has you know, scrapped the whole thing. So there's going to be a lot of two steps forward, three steps back here. <laughs> yeah, it's a, that's a really good point, Alex. I, I guess it also speaks to a question I have, which is, I guess to use El Salvador as a specific example, how do you reconcile maybe what a skeptic or at first glance, even maybe yourself might look mm-hmm. at some of his motives and sit and, and pinpoint them as, or identify them as the view of Bitcoin as a speculative asset or as a way to um, draw in outside foreign investment into the country, a, a mm-hmm. sovereign money grab as it were, versus a tool for promoting human rights? Well, I've made it very clear that I disagree with Bukele's more authoritarian political policies. I mean, the guy's uh, ripping up the Constitution. Um, He's arresting tens of thousands of people. Um, You know what? And I'm not going to sit here and say that 
you know, I know best. I mean, they have a horrific gang problem and uh, he's brought more safety at the expense of civil liberties. But you know mm-hmm. what? I mean, that's that's a law and order Republican perspective that, that that's a good thing. I happen to not be a law and order Republican, so I don't I don't agree that it's smart to sacrifice liberty for for security, but you certainly can do it. Um, I mean, most urban areas and dictatorships tend to be pretty safe, like from street crime perspective. <laughs> um, th- is that worth the trade off? I mean, that's a, that's sort of up to you. Um, but I I do think that um, he he does raise questions and pokes curiosity for a lot of leaders in Latin America and beyond, um, that, that something else is possible. I mean, again, he, it was easy enough for him to do it because he, he didn't have control over the monetary policy. It's a dollarized economy. So, mm-hmm. you know, dictators, they might dislike the dollar, but they, they, they like having their own currency even more, right? Mm-hmm. So it's highly unlikely you're going to see countries that, that exercise monetary authority, like go to Bitcoin. That, mm-hmm. that seems like unlikely. But I think you'll start seeing countries kind of add it in interesting different ways over the coming decade. Mining obviously being the big one. If, if they have, if they have cheap energy, it makes a lot of sense for them to mine, uh, whether it be through the private sector or themselves. I think you'll see more of that. Um, but in general, I, 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 I think it's all about the individual, man. I mean, it's, it's incredible. Like in the 1980s, if you were being structurally adjusted in Peru, right. Which, which, which happened all across the world and tens of millions of people perished. Uh, it's true. If you just look at the stats, you have a country like like Mexico, for example, or Peru, and the GDP declines two percent, the mortality rate goes up one percent, and we're talking countries that lost five, ten, twenty, thirty percent of their GDP over time because of structural adjustment. So we're talking millions of people that died. I mean, it's impossible to count, but like clearly, like a massive impact. And there was no way to escape. Like you didn't have a way to get another currency system or enter into another way to put your like fruit of your labor into something that that couldn't be squeezed today's very different and the data shows it i mean if you look at the data out of bloomberg out of forbes like coming out in the last few months the countries that got crushed worse by these like ifis these international financial institutions whether it be the bank the fund or even the chinese versions which are now Mm -hmm. popping up big time they are adopting cryptocurrency the fastest i mean whether it be indonesia brazil nigeria that we're looking at it, it was something like internet users age 16 to 64 uh worldwide about 10 percent adoption in that category uh, of cryptocurrencies kind of like the median the u.s is like slightly above that i think it's like 11 or 12 percent something like that but some of these countries it's like it's like 20 25 30 percent it's a shocking and it makes sense i mean they want they want bitcoin or they want dollars they want tether um so that's what's happening and uh, people are escaping. And I think that's, that's really inspiring. What do you think are some of the bigger impediments for maybe the global South and their adoption of Bitcoin sans uh, scare evil dictators? Well, I mean, the volatility, man, I mean, it's, 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 it's a long road. I mean, it's, when you look at how currency systems change, it usually is many decades. So when the the British pound eventually gave way to the dollar, it was way after they had they had been the, the dominant military power. I mean, it's mm-hmm. sticky. I mean, these things are pretty sticky. Because think about it. Even if the dollar, like whatever, 
collapse tomorrow or something. I mean, think about the payment infrastructure. Like when you go down the street to get a coffee, like it's not like yeah. that could change in a day or a week. Like just all the like pricing, all the systems that we have to price the trade of goods. Like these things take time. Uh, and, and they are changing, by the way. I mean, we the, the dollarization thing clearly, clearly happening. I mean, I, I think people cheer it for the wrong reasons. They cheer it because they they want that they're excited about China or something, which is I think pathetic. But um, I, I I I think it's more just an observation. Like the world's going more multipolar right now, and were it not for Bitcoin, we'd probably end up with these like regional currency like structures. Mm. But I think we have a chance at this like one neutral asset. Well, and for we, and we may we may have that, and it's. Maybe it's um, dominant in one particular region, perhaps. Yeah, and I still think the dollar, like as long as we have fiat central banking, the dollar is going to be the dominant one. There's, I don't think there's any question. Like it's not, it's not going to beat China. That, like, if you look at the history of reserve currencies, uh, at least domestically, the issuer had property rights and rule of law mm-hmm. and courts. Like whether it be the Dutch or the English or the Americans, like. China doesn't have any of that stuff. Like no one's going to want to sock up all their value over there. It could get confiscated any second. So, I mean, that's why you see, even though you're, look, you, and a lot of people have made this point, but like you might see the pricing and the trade denomination fall away from the dollar into these local currencies. But what matters is what they save in. And mm-hmm. the yuan is not really moving the needle there very much. And that's where I think you see Bitcoin happening, not necessarily in like the, de- like it's not like you're going to see like the, denomination of oil like right away but i think you might start seeing you know institutions more and, savings and governments more kind of put it into their portfolio uh, 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 in terms of reserves so we'll see but that's that's i think the hope for a lot of these people i mean just think about it i mean if there was one single currency that could connect all africans that's gonna it's gonna just spark so much prosperity and and entrepreneurial dynamics and think about labor markets. Like one point I make in the book and in my work is that when you have all these like hundreds of different labor markets that are trapped in by these different currencies, the Naira and the Peso and the Lira and the Pound, etc. Like those people can get squeezed at like varying rates. Like they can all kind of get squeezed and it allows us, I mean, partly in many ways, there's other factors, of course, but it really allows us to have these like super cheap wages that prop us up over here. Um, if you have one currency, I mean, it's just going to be much harder to do that. Like, mm-hmm. yes, there will still be obviously cheaper labor in places and more expensive labor in others, but like the spread will will close over mm-hmm. uh, five to 10 years much faster. Um, you'll be much more likely to hire people in other places if, if you have no issues logistically to paying them like that's i think such a big thing that people miss and it's one of the biggest reasons that people in the global south use bitcoin to connect to their family abroad is that it's easy and it's better i mean i mean people like complain about it today in the west but like it's basically like the difference between for a lot of these folks sending something in the mail versus an email i mean Mm -hmm. that's what you're talking about here like the idea of once someone starts using bitcoin for remittance the idea of going back to a bank wire, I mean, they would laugh at you. They would laugh at you. And I think that's what so many people in our industry miss. They just don't have that experience. They don't live it. Um, yeah. So I guess to sort of round out the conversation, what what predictions, what, what can you maybe forecast if you put your crystal ball in front of you over <laughs> the next uh, six months for Bitcoin, maybe to a oh, year? Oh, man. Uh, I, I mean – Number of users will go up. There's no question. I mean, even in the spare market, it's it's fascinating to watch. Uh, uh, 
we'll do our part there as much as we can to continue investing in communities and education, grassroots leaders. I think you're going to start seeing more stuff happen in the human rights space. Like uh, we've been proud at HRF to be, to be pushing Bitcoin. Um, I think you're going to see some other organizations come in and start realizing that, you know, maybe not ideologically attractive to them. I mean, I, like is the ideology that people create who created email uh, attractive to me? Like, I don't know, but email is great. So <laughs> I think what you're going to start seeing is a lot of not just, um, you're, you're not an email maxi. Uh, well, I mean, look, there's nothing nicer than writing a letter to somebody, but yeah, I'm pretty much an email maxi dude. Yes. Uh, <laughs> compared to the postal service. But, um, I, I think that you're going to start seeing humanitarian groups, human rights groups, like groups that do kind of like aid abroad, I can tell you from converse, a lot of conversations that they're starting to realize just how useful Bitcoin is as just like a medium of exchange just to move the value of one place to another. Now, once the person gets it on the other side, maybe they cash out right away to stable coins or to local fiat or, or whatever. But the, the the ease to which it, it, it improves your internal administrative logistical stuff is is incredible. And and there's no current like tax issue in America. Like it's treated very favorably. And, you know, we disperse a ton of grants around the world in Bitcoin. Mm -hmm. There's no challenges to this. It's the same paperwork mm -hmm. as a bank wire. It's just it takes way it's faster. So my prediction is you're going to start seeing a lot of organizations start doing this um, in, in the coming six to 12 months, big time. Stance the reason. Where can our listeners learn more about the, the book, um, mm -hmm. your, what you're working on, maybe some of the grants? I, I know there was a recent one for 500000 that's yeah. going to a bunch of initiatives. Yeah, well, href.org, you can learn about our programs there at the Human Rights Foundation. We have a financial freedom program, and we do three things. We do public education, so, you know, you and I talking now. Uh, we do we do the um, workshops and training, so that'll take place at the Oslo Freedom Forum, which is coming up June 13 to 15 next month in Norway and in a lot of other locations around the world. And then we have the, the fund, the Bitcoin Development Fund, which, yeah, it gives out about, roughly speaking, a half million dollars moving forward every quarter to, to open source Bitcoin software development and community development around the world. So folks can check that out at href.org. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at Gladstein and you can check out the new book, Hidden Repression. It's available uh, at, at, on Amazon and also at, if you want to pay in Bitcoin at the, at the Bitcoin magazine store. Fantastic. Once again, we've been joined today by our guest, Alex Gladstein, Chief Strategy Officer at the Human Rights Foundation. We appreciate you taking the time to be here. And oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you for having me, Frank and, and team. No, our pleasure indeed. Appreciate it. Talk soon.